Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to The Prospect Interview, the podcast where we speak to the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. Today I'm talking to author and senior fellow at the Theos Think Tank, Nick Spencer, for a festive discussion about the many lives of Jesus Christ. Jesus' teachings have been widely cited and flexibly interpreted, some might say distorted, over the centuries. Now, at a time when organised religion is dwindling, at least in the West, what can we learn from Jesus? In the current issue of the magazine, Nick writes about two books which try to reconfigure Jesus for our secular age. Nick, thanks for joining us on the Prospect interview. Pleasure. Um, it's often said that Jesus is the most significant and influential person who has ever lived. And there's a pretty good case for that. Um, but how has his influence been exerted exactly? And, and what people have made of him over the centuries has changed markedly, hasn't it? It has. I mean, I think being as influential as that means by definition that a very large number of people will have used you used your message, used your cause for their own ends. If there are, the figures vary, one and a half, two billion Christians in the world today and many more throughout history, almost invariably you and what you have said and what you've done is going to be hijacked for a vast range of different political and social and economic causes. So hugely influential, but that means a lot of people are going to twist you to their own particular agendas and for one person's twisting to an agenda is another person's creative interpretation, isn't it? I mean, isn't it in a way a strength of a religion that its its founder or, or lead figure can speak to very different people across very different times? It certainly is. And you have to remember that all texts are open to interpretation. The early church, or really the, the, the Church of the Church Fathers from kind of the 4th century through to the 7th century, were repeatedly trying to define what true belief was in increasingly specific, narrow, philosophically loaded terms in such a way as to differentiate it from other heresies, as they saw it, other false interpretations of the message of Jesus. The problem is, once you'd 
laid down the boundaries in one area, you realise, like any good legal contract, that people start differentiating over the certain the word, meaning of certain specific words. So you have another church council with another confession or another creed. There's a strand within Christianity that's always tried to pin down precisely what Christianity is. It's always going to be a forlorn task because all texts, all human movements have their own kind of generative energy. They, they, they vary. And, and Jesus didn't come down with a specific agenda, a specific formula. So in that sense, he's even more um, vulnerable to that kind of creativity and use. And it's right there at the start, isn't it? Because you have the four Gospels. So you, already you've got four different interpretations of uh, a life. Uh, and there's that, there's that phrase, I think, in, you know, verse in John saying that Jesus did many other things as well. And the whole world would not have had room for the books that would have been uh, written um, if it had all been recorded. So this idea that there's a sort of endless amount of, uh, not endless amount, I suppose that's the um, that's the crux, as it were, but there is a, a, a multiple uh, levels of interpretation possible, even from the earliest uh, Christians. I think that's an incredibly important book. If you were to set out to design a religion from a blueprint, you wouldn't start with the Bible. It is a remarkably plural text. So specifically, as you were saying there, there are four Gospels. There was an attempt by a, a Syrian church father in the second century to harmonise them, in what was known as the Diatessaron, so bring the four Gospels into one single coherent narrative whole. Famously, Marcion, who was a uh, a, a Greek church father, a heretic from the second century, tries to do the same by cutting out huge swathes of the letters, retaining some of Paul's and then retaining some of the Gospels because he wanted to bring some kind of order there. I think there's a profound wisdom in the church fathers who insisted that despite the fact they rub up against each other in some awkward ways, we need all four Gospels. And on top of that, we need the Book of Acts, which almost certainly comes from the pen of Luke's, of Luke's Gospel, but we need letters from Paul and other, and other early as we know them, New Testament writers. So rather than trying to artificially impose some kind of rigid harmony on this emerging movement, we want to draw on the whole range of texts that we consider to be authoritative, even if you're left with a canon that is frankly a bit messy in the end. And there have been attempts in the 19th century with sort of higher criticism, so-called, to not exactly harmonise the Gospels, but try and dig down and work out whether there is an originary document that has been lost now on which these Gospels were, were based. You know, so Matthew and Luke based on something called Q, a sort of source text, which, as I'm right in thinking, is a sort of wise sayings of, of Jesus rather than actually his... Uh, life stories. Is that right? Well, there are two things that are going on there. First thing that happens in really the 19th century, although you can see trace of it in the 18th century, is the historicization of the New Testament. But what I mean, what I mean by that is that a focused attempt to locate who Jesus was, what he did, what his early followers did in the historical context of the time. In one sense, that begins with Renaissance humanism, but it really gains speed and the quest for the historical Jesus picks up in the 19th century. In the process of doing that, you realise that there are patterns and, if you like, layers within each of the Gospels. And it seems as if there's shared contact between Matthew and Mark, 
and Matthew and Luke, and possibly Mark and Luke. These are the synoptic Gospels. And about a hundred or so years ago, scholars posited the existence of a, of a document called Q from the, from the German Kell, um, which they think was a, a document of Jesus' sayings. But Q has never been found. It's never been identified. It possibly never even existed as a text. And we have to remember that in the first century, it's a primarily oral culture. They only started writing the Gospels down when the eyewitnesses, who were the reliable sources, began to die out in the middle third, possibly the last third of the century. So it could well be that Q never existed. It was just the sayings of Jesus that were that were recounted. Either way, there's definitely shared material that, as it were, lies a bit beneath the surface of the canonical Gospels as we have them. And you write in the piece that you've uh, done for Prospect about a new edition of Thomas Jefferson's Bible. And he sort of was trying to do something in his own idiosyncratic way similar to that. Um, tell us about the Jefferson Bible. Well, Jefferson was reputed in his political time as being a bit of a, a heretic, really. I mean, he wasn't an atheist. He was a he was a um, he was a late Enlightenment figure, profoundly influenced by Locke and the British Enlightenment. And as such, he adhered to, in fact, had a huge respect for what he considered to be the ethical teachings of Jesus, but really sneered at the, the miracles, any sense of the supernatural, any clericalism in there, anything that gave birth to centuries of superstition and priestcraft. He was known for his heterodox, shall we say, views when he was president at the beginning of the 19th century. But it was only when he retired 20 or so years later, even though he'd been thinking about it for a while, that he decided to, as I put in the piece, take a scalpel to the Gospels, not out of rage or, or, or spite, but to actually take what he considered to be the ethical diamonds from the supernatural dung. And he put together a book which subsequently was lost, actually. It was only rediscovered 70 or so years later, which came to be known as the Jefferson Bible, which is a bit like Q, this hypothetical Q. It's a kind of collected ethical sayings of Jesus, which is very admirable. But as I say in the piece, and as Peter Manso mentions in his, in his, in his very good book, it does, does look a bit like Jefferson, really. So this is the thing, isn't it? So people examine the life of Jesus and the Gospels, and they look and they try and find who the real Jesus is, and it turns out to be sort of quite aligned with their own versions of themselves. And even in the book that edited by Tom Holland, that you have an essay in, this new book that I've, I've got here um, called Revolutionary, um, you know, you have uh, Julian Bugini has an essay in there, and, and, and Jesus turns out to be a bit of a philosopher. And Terry Eagleton has an essay in there, and Jesus turns out to be a sort of Marxist before the Marxists. Is that adding to the richness of interpretation or is that or, or, or should we be wary of that kind of seeing of seeing off our image at the bottom of the well as it were? Uh, I think it does both actually. Uh, there are two elements here that New Testament scholars are sometimes jibed about the fact that in their search for the historical Jesus they look down the well and see their own reflection staring back at them vaguely. That's even more the case for people who set out to search for the ethical Jesus, because uh, uh, apart from the occasional Nietzsche, everyone really admires Jesus, and therefore there's a natural human instinct to find yourself, or at least the best bits of yourself in him. Now, you need to be wary of that, because the danger of that is you end up remaking this figure entirely in your own image. 
but you can't help it. Everybody reads from a particular position. You invariably, therefore, bring yourself into that sort of interpretive encounter. And that is actually a, a very good thing. It's been, been pointed out by you know, New Testament scholars. In fact, I was reading one just, just this morning, how the vast majority of New Testament scholars throughout history and even well into the 20th century have been male and have been therefore almost completely deaf to the extraordinary sensitivity and prevalence of women in the Gospels, figures whom you wouldn't normally get in ancient biographies. So it's no bad thing bringing yourself into that act of interpretation because you sometimes hear things that other people don't. You've just got to be careful that you don't mistake what you hear for being the definitive edition because it ain't going to be. So, of course, in our, um, a modern uh, liberal and secular worldview is likely to pick from Jesus's words what um, may well accord with that worldview. And is that... As you said, there's there's opportunities, but also dangers in there. But what I'm interested in, what what is the the challenge? What are the things that we should should make us um, uncomfortable about uh, Jesus's message? The things that aren't very amenable to sort of liberal pieties, as it were. That's a really good question. I mean, of course, it invariably depends on where people are coming from. Um, that is invariably going to shape what they find most challenging or shocking about. Um, this particular Jesus. The obvious example, um, and Julian Pagini does this very well in um, in his book, and as I, as I think I say in the review, I think Julian does an, an excellent job of, sort of morally excavating Jesus. For those Christians that see Jesus as synonymous with family values, reading about what he does say about the family, which he is almost entirely dismissive of, or, or at least seeks to circumvent or, or, or to place something that's morally more significant and important, that can, that can be very shocking. Um, uh, Julian does a, a very good job. In fact, I, I think that I, I was kind of more, as it were, morally refreshed by Julian's reading of uh, ethical reading of Jesus than I have by enormous number of Christians, simply because Julian doesn't, you know, isn't a Christian, doesn't claim to follow Jesus, and therefore isn't minded to take some of the rough edges off Jesus's teaching and what he conveys very well. And this, I think, is you know, upsetting to my own rather comfortable liberal Christian faith, is that it's incredibly challenging. It's relentlessly tough and demanding to the extent that you think no serious person is ever going to achieve this, perhaps even perhaps even attempt it. Actually, I like that. I like the fact that the moral teaching can't be contained is always going to be a pretty stiff kick up the backside. I think that challenges people who think that, you know, they understand, let alone follow Jesus' teachings. There's a famous scene in Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov, when I think it's in one of the characters' dreams, when a grand inquisitor from the uh, Inquisition puts Jesus on trial. And um, essentially, the, Jesus is a real nuisance to the inquisitor because he's the person who, who sets these ethical challenges and the construction of the church is going to be undermined by his very presence. And there's only one fate that this reappeared Jesus has to, uh, can be dealt with, and that's to be got rid of. You know, there's this constant challenge, isn't there? To, you know, what if Jesus came back today? What would he make of what his followers had done in his name? There's a, a line that the Reformation Church adapted, which is the, the Reformed Church is the church always reforming. Now, I think properly speaking, at its best, you can apply that to the, to the church 
altogether, not just the Reformed Church. The point is that Jesus, as we kind of said at the beginning, doesn't come with a blueprint or a template for, you know, for the church, for collective Christian existence. What he does bring to it is this relentless, demanding, seemingly endless moral energy, if you like, which, if properly harnessed, will help the church and indeed Christian believers to be always reforming, to recognise that who they are and what they do isn't good enough and that they endlessly need both the encouragement and the help and the motivation not to rest with who they are and what they do, but to be endlessly reforming and to see Jesus and his teaching and his life as that kind of Duracell battery of energy, of moral energy, if you like, I think is one of the best ways of doing so. Does that energy still have valency today? I mean, um, we, you know, fewer people in this country go to church, more people who are culturally Christian perhaps uh, in the past just don't, don't really take that much interest in, in traditional church going. Um, in an argument made by Tom Holland, the historian recently, he, he actually argues that even though people may not regard themselves as being Christian, they had have almost un, unconsciously breathed the air of Christianity and its moral precepts have shaped the way the West um, thinks about it itself. Do you think there's any truth in that? Oh, I definitely think there's truth in that. I think it comes with a caveat. Um, you know, it sometimes says there's no such thing as a Christian nation. Indeed, there's no such thing as a Christian society or a Christian civilization, meaning we would be gravely mistaken to look back 50 years, let alone 200 or 500, and think, ah, oh, that was a Christian civilization in as far as it was entirely modelled and regenerated by Christian moral energy or Jesus's moral energy. It, its contours and its landscape and its moral imagination was profoundly and deeply informed by it, although not exclusively Christianity, but of course, it didn't always work out anything like Jesus's life and message. So Tom, I think, is entirely right to say, you know, we are the inheritors of 1500 years of that moral imagination. And it does not disappear overnight. It does not even disappear in you know 50 years since the 1960s. It is still in the atmosphere we breathe. I think that's absolutely right. As long as you take it with the caveat that if you like, it's the particulates of the ideas that you can find in the Gospels that we're still breathing in, don't assume that those particulates ever actually constructed a full-on Christian culture or civilization because they didn't. And there's something else implicit in his argument is that other cultures and religions don't have the same ethical worldview that Christianity uh, has formed as well. There, there does seem to be a sort of hierarchy in his, even if implicit in, in his argument. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a really interesting one. I've, I've touched with him a bit about this, and I certainly don't want to speak on, on his behalf. I think there is a mistake to think that um, the, the Christian moral worldview is entirely distinct from and separate from other moral worldviews, whether they are other religious ones or even non-religious ones. Within Christian thought, there is a profound tradition of, of natural law, and the idea that humans, qua humans, share a certain moral conception of what is good and bad. Not entirely, but C.S. Lewis, for example, ends his little book, The Abolition of Man, with a 10 or 15 page appendix 
in which he shows how certain moral lessons, such as the golden rule and indictments against murder or protection of parents, that kind of thing, can be found in cultures across the world. In other words, Christianity will share with certain many other moral civilizations a great number of its moral commitments and convictions. I do think, and I think Tom is, is right here, that in locating God, the source of ultimate value, in a humiliated, tortured criminal on the cross, did send Christianity in a slightly different direction. And at its best, it, it, it has honoured that. So I would say that there were distinct characteristics of Christianity, but that isn't the same as saying it is entirely distinct, or indeed that there is some kind of invisible hierarchy going on. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You didn't grow up as a Christian, I believe, and um, I was wondering whether you could tell us a little bit about your first encounters with, with faith, and particularly with the figure of Jesus, and what in him appealed to you. No, that's right, I didn't, I, I, I joked that I, I grew up in a, a very loving, but totally, I mean, a kind of agnostic, disinterested family. Um, I, um, I went off to university, uh, I, I'm sure my parents prepared themselves for me to come back, having had a kind of messy encounter with drink or drugs or women or whatever else it was and, I, and a few years later I came back an Anglican and they really didn't know what to do about that and that hadn't that really hadn't been expecting that um it was actually a combination of two things one of which had had, had started beforehand and, and I, I write a little bit about this in my chapter in the revolutionary book I had an absolutely brilliant and inspiring English teacher who transformed um, my entire life really starting from GCC 30 plus years ago and introduced me to literature and to poetry. And what really caught my eye was poems of faith and doubt. So we read, um, uh, we read Arnold, and we read Hopkins, and we read Clough, and we read Larkin, and Eliot, and Herbert, and Dunn, and so on and so forth. And I was really transfixed by this poetry. Very, very different poets a lot of the time, but writing about something that clearly mattered to them, and that was a universe that was completely alien to me. So that piqued my interest. I studied 
literature and, and history at university. And therefore, when I first encountered the New Testament documents, I approached them as a historian and was pleasantly surprised. Uh, I had been led to believe through no reason other than picking it up by osmosis that this was simply Chinese whispers that had been passed through a series of increasingly unreliable witnesses in the long chain of transmission. And actually, they're not like that at all. They're amongst the most reliable documents we have from the first century. Um, so I was impressed by them historically, and I, and I was my interest in in in, in faith um, was piqued by a lot of poets that I was reading. And then I, as is often the way, I, I met you know a few people who both who managed to combine both kind of intellectual um, credibility and moral appeal. And in the end, absolutely no Damascene moment. I thought actually this, this kind of makes more sense than it doesn't. So it wasn't in any way dramatic at all, but 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 gradual. One of the most interesting lines in your piece for us is when you say that the ethical Jesus is asked to stand away, he's asked to stand up, the authoritative, existential, perhaps even divine figure comes with him. Is it possible for people to separate the admirable ethical rules of Jesus or uh, suggestions or, or, or that, that he makes in the Gospels? Uh, is it possible to separate that from the supernatural element? Is Jefferson's experiment actually doomed to failure? Um, I, I think Jefferson's is because he, he doesn't do it particularly well. I, I think it's certainly possible to separate two, without a doubt. And as I said, I think Julian does an, a, an excellent job of this. Personally, I find it uh, not as credible as keeping the two together. And I picked this up in just one or two lines from uh, my review in my review of, of, of Julian's book in, in, in particular. You know, there, there's the kind of moral attractiveness that Jesus has, which is married to a really kind of abrasive arrogance, you might call it, um, where he dwells on his own authority, effectively. Now, that, that, that makes a kind of slightly awkward bedfellow with a slight more, more, more humble kind of uh, ethical Jesus. So I, you know, I think you can pick up the ethical Jesus independently. But I think actually one of the reasons why you have to remember that the first Jesus didn't come with a barcode and the first Christians, it's a very, very long, slow process of trying to work out who he is. Not least seeing is they're almost all good Jews and therefore they know that God is one. They are monotheists. So to ascribe divinity to Jesus is much, much harder for them than it would be for us modern, sceptical, secular-minded people. But they're kind of edged in that direction, partly, I think, because of his ethical teachings and life. And I think it's a similar fact to us. You can just take the ethical teachings in life. But if you read them carefully, I think you find them, I personally find it more persuasive to think, actually, there's something else, something going on here, going on here that goes beyond simply ethics and living. And it's interesting, from my personal point of view, um, the way that uh, the Quran and Islam picks up the figure of Jesus and um, what elements are picked up. Um, his supernatural elements are things that seem to be most uh, appealing. And in fact, we talked about the four Gospels earlier, but stories which are in the so-called apocryphal Gospels, like the infancy Gospel of Thomas, end up in the Quran. 
um, stories about uh, Jesus standing up in the cradle and speaking, stories about creating a bird out of clay and giving life to it. And those little patternings and little sort of echoes are um, talking to you. What, what, what do you make of the way that, um, let's say, other religions like Islam have made of what they've made of Jesus and made of your special figure? Well, one of the reasons why the early church started developing the idea of a canon, which can be traced to at least 180 AD, possibly slightly earlier, and then started engaging in writing uh, confessions and creeds, was because there was this flowering of stories about and teachings about Jesus. And it did this because um, there's actually relatively little reliable first-hand information we have Jesus, a tiny bit from Paul's letters, and then the Synoptic Gospels, and then also also John's Gospel. So there was a temptation to fill in the gaps, as it were. And I don't, I, I'm not actually sure quite how the early church fathers dealt with the with the apocryphal Gospels, as they're called, but they certainly categorised them as apocryphal. So there is something to be said for using them imaginatively, as indeed countless modern novelists have done to try and get into the head of who Jesus was, what he did, what he was like to be around, what he demands of you. And I think that imaginative process can be a very positive and creative one, but it's not an authoritative one. And I think the danger is you start treating these imaginative, effectively novelistic texts as if they are historically reliable, authoritative accounts of the life. And I think that is a mistake. We're coming up to Christmas right now and an important uh, time of the year for lots of people and for Christians in particular. And it always struck me that despite you talk about the historical interpretations developed in the 19th century, the examination of the historicity of the Gospels, um, there's something about the, the, the Jesus story, particularly the Christmas story, that is uh, impervious or impregnable to historical a deconstruction, as it were. I read a, I read a book a few years ago by uh, a scholar called Geza Vermes, and it was about the... Um, it was an argument saying that uh, Jesus hadn't really been born in Bethlehem, and there wasn't uh, historical evidence for that, and because it was uh, David's city, Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem, and there wasn't actually... The Romans didn't send people back to their hometown to, to register. And that was a sort of myth that had to be created in order for the, the the lineage of Jesus to be affirmed. And I thought it was, you know, an interesting argument. I'm not qualified to say either way whether the, the historical truth of it. Um, but I don't see anyone changing the lyrics of O Little Town of Bethlehem. I don't see people rewriting nativity plays. The, the the stories are so deeply entwined within our culture, they don't seem uh, susceptible to scepticism. Yeah, I mean, I I um, I would go as far as Giza Vermes, although I think it's undoubtedly the case that uh, the... Uh birth narrative, the infancy narratives are, you know, less historically well attested than, than the rest of the, the synoptic gospels in which they come. I think there are two reasons why they remain they retain their power. Um, one is that, in a sense, irrespective of their historicity, they have an ethical force to them. One of the arguments that historical scholars have sometimes used about, you know, if you're going to make the stories up, you wouldn't make these up. Well, you know, that, that, that's debatable, but um, the themes of 
homelessness and vulnerability and refugee and abusive, violent political power is, irrespective of what you think of the base of the story, an extremely powerful one. And I think that retains a very strong hold on our moral imagination. But also, and you have to admit this, the other reason is money. It has become a the commercial opportunity in the year, as we know this year more than any other. And therefore, there's almost a kind of subtle vested interest in not trying to debunk these stories. Because if this is the basis on which we all get round together and give each other presents because, you know, the wise men gave Jesus gifts, well, all to the good as far as the economy is concerned. So I think there's a, as a, as a moral reason for its continued hold over us, but there's also quite a, a grumpy commercial reason too. Well, Nick, let's, let's stay away from the grumpiness for the moment and, and, and wish you a very good Christmas um, and a happy new year. Thank you. Lovely to chat with you, Samir. And that's all from us. This is the last episode of the year. Thanks very much for joining us on our discussions with the brightest minds of 2020. It's been a difficult year and I hope that we've managed to keep you company, uh, lockdown or wherever you are. We'll be back next year with science writer Philip Ball joining us to talk about the coronavirus vaccine. If you enjoyed our podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It really does help. Goodbye, stay safe and see you next time.